Hi everyone, this is Erica Spicer Mason with Becker's Hospital Review. Thanks so much for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare Podcast Series. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by two guests, Dr. Ed Wu, the co-founder and chief medical officer at Recora, and Terry Rogers, the president of Pritikin ICR. Ed and Terry, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to this as well. So just to kind of get us started, I wanted to start a bit broadly and get both of your perspectives on what you're seeing as some of the biggest challenges that health system leaders are facing today. Terry, maybe we can start with you to get us going here. Yeah, thanks, Erica. Um, What we're hearing in the marketplace, some of the more uh, common issues are declining revenues, the always present payer pressures that systems face, increased labor costs, labor shortages, and employee burnout due to the pandemic and the tail associated with it. Ed, what else um, would you add to that list? Yeah, Terry, I would I would certainly agree with those. Uh, I have had many discussions with uh, C-suites um, and, and officers of, of hospitals, and, and I echo the need to reduce cost and address labor shortages. Um, I've also picked up on a couple other ones, including patient leakage, that meaning patients that are going from health system to health system or medical group to medical group and and not really having loyalty. Also seeing some care coordination issues as as patients truly try to find out how to better care for themselves. And that seems to be lost in some of the, the the labor shortages and the cost cutting and the, and the revenue reductions that, that we're seeing out there. Uh, also, a more recent one is how best to deploy telehealth and virtual and digital solutions amidst a sea of options. Thank you both so much. I think that really hits the nail on the head in terms of what we at Becker's are also seeing just in our daily coverage of issues that hospitals and health systems continue to face. So what you're saying really resonates. And it really speaks to how these bigger issues of financial challenges, for example, and staffing issues, how they, those issues trickle down into kind of those more day-to-day operations. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I know we're here today to talk a bit more specifically about the cardiac services space. So I know in this specialty area, we typically see revenue and driving patient volumes And I'm wondering what gaps you're seeing here in terms of operations and strategy. I was thinking, Ed, you might be able to speak to that one. Yeah, thanks, Erica. There are a couple of of trends and gaps that that we've seen in our discussions with hospital leaders. As I mentioned, as Terry and I mentioned a a little bit earlier, this sense of disintermediation, the the cost-cutting, the revenue shortages, um, is really making it difficult for hospitals to operate. We're seeing retrenching of costs by 10% or greater. That's not unheard of. Uh, and cardiovascular service lines are certainly included in this. Uh, they have seen huge pressures to perform fiscally um, as well as on in clinical outcomes. Uh, and unfortunately, this has resulted in what I like to call a, a subsequent gap that has led to a shift in cardiovascular care to procedural interventions as opposed to preventative or recovery 
uh, interventions uh, such as um, cardiac rehab. And, and let me highlight this gap a little bit more. This is quite stark. Research has actually shown that about 8%, only 8% have completed a post-surgical or post-hospitalization course of cardiac rehab. That means there's a gap of 92% where there's a, there's a huge area of unmet need for these cardiovascular patients to get better care, to recover from their conditions, and actually prove that the hospital that they came from um, is, is doing a great job. Um, further exacerbating this, we had COVID. And during COVID, we had about 200, uh, 220 cardiac rehab centers that shut down. That's about 10% of national capacity of cardiac rehab centers. And that's actually exacerbated this, this big gap. So that's just an example of, of um, a gap that's that's really painful as a provider myself to, to see. Um, this um, this has led to a lot of patient leakage. You know, you, as I mentioned before, you're seeing patients that aren't really getting good follow through, and um, this has um, really impacted cardiovascular aftercare. So post hospitalization, post procedure, um, the 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 silver lining here is that this this time of cardiovascular aftercare after after they've been discharged. This is a golden moment to really improve patient experience, improve procedural outcomes or document procedural outcomes for that facility. And we've actually had some chief financial officers, some CFOs that have spoken um, spoken to us that have focused on this cardiovascular aftercare, say that this has been a way to drive patient revenues back into the black. Absolutely. And what you're saying about aftercare really rings true. There's so much that can, I don't want to say go wrong, but patients who've had a significant procedure really do need support after the fact, especially when they're back at home. And so having that area overlooked, I'm sure, um, you know, really doesn't support patient outcomes nor the health system's outcome either. Um, right. So thanks so much for sharing about that, Ed. I'd like to dive a little bit more into cardiac care post-discharge, um, because it looks like both of your organizations really focus on this, and particularly in the cardiac rehab space. So I'm wondering if you can discuss how cardiac rehab fits into the overall cardiovascular service line. Terry, maybe we can have you get us started here. Sure. Uh, let me level set with a little background to start. And uh, you'll hear me refer to conventional CR going forward as CR, so I don't have to say it every time, CR or ICR, meaning intensive cardiac rehab. But conventional car cardiac rehab has really been the mainstay of a cardiovascular rehab service since 1982 when it was first approved by Medicare. Now, fast forward to 2010 when CMS approved two ICR programs under the national coverage determination process. And since then, the Pritikin Intensive Cardiac Rehab Program that I'm responsible for has been the fastest growing CR or ICR program in the nation with over 175 licensed providers expected to provide the service by the end of this year. Now, both CR and ICR programs consist of this multidisciplinary evidence-based intervention that utilize individualized 
patient treatment plans that have been proven to uh, improve clinical outcomes and quality of care. The primary difference between CR and intensive cardiac rehab is that intensive cardiac rehab offers an additional 36 lifestyle educational uh, sessions that consist of these immersive group workshops, professionally produced videos, one-on-one consults in the areas of exercise, healthy mindset, stress reduction, and heart-healthy nutrition. The results for patients who go through our ICR program are improved functional capacity and stress reduction, lowering of cardiovascular risk factors like weight, blood pressure, lipids, triglycerides, and ultimately decreased readmissions and mortality, and simultaneously helping the health system's bottom line. Now, an important factor that most people don't know is that cardiac rehab and intensive cardiac rehab are considered class 1A interventions. And for those of you, just in case you don't know, class 1A intervention is, it means it's accepted as the standard of care. In post-acute coronary syndrome and in PCI, CR and ICR are considered class 1A uh, interventions, just like aspirin, beta blockers, statins, and ACE inhibitors. However, unlike those drug therapies that I mentioned that have utilization rates in the 75 to 95% range, CR and ICR discharge use is at an abysmal 24 to 26%. As Ed said earlier, he, st he stated research has shown only 8% have completed post-surgical or post-hospitalization rehab. So it's not utilized like some of the more commonly uh, known and effective therapies. Now, these really, these cardiovascular rehab services should just be just like physical therapy after an orthopedic procedure. A physician or patient wouldn't consider going home and not going through uh, physical therapy after a knee or hip replacement, and they shouldn't go home not expected to participate in cardiac rehab uh, as well. But we've got referral rates that are overall low. We've got participation rates that are low nationwide due to a lot of barriers that we'll discuss a little later in the conversation. But the last couple of things I'll mention are cardiac rehab hasn't historically been seen as a profit center for the hospital as a standalone service. However, it is a valuable offering for a full cardiac service line and quality patient care program. And like the health system in general, there are a fair amount of headwinds um, in CR in the form of labor and capital costs, like we were talking about earlier in the conversation. But these can be addressed with some alternative approaches like intensive cardiac rehab, as well as virtual CR and ICR that Ed can speak to next. Thanks, Terry. Um, really great uh, recap and discussion of cardiac, cardiac rehab and, and RCR, uh, CR and ICR. And now let's talk a little bit about the modality. So you, CR and ICR has traditionally been done in a facility. Um, more recently, we're talking the past few years, this has been done virtually. And this can really increase access. So gone are the days where you have to show up uh, 36 to 72 times um, you know, to, to go to, to these sessions in person. You can actually do this virtually. 
And what we've seen and what we've heard from hospitals that are doing this and allowing for virtual sessions is that they're actually able to see many more patients. And in some cases, three to four times the number of patients are able to get cardiac rehab, uh, whether it's CR or ICR. And this is great because, you know, you're at the end of the day, it's about providing patient choice, patient access, and um, this can be done in a more scalable fashion. And so, you know, their staffing um, can be can be more more leveraged to see this larger population. And so it really starts to turn the tide in terms of being an operationally um, you know, efficient, more efficient uh, program. That being said, uh, Terry, you, you hit the nail on the head, has historically has not been a huge moneymaker, but we actually just had a chief medical officer of a health system in Florida who said, you know, having a virtual and, and a more robust program dedicated to cardiac rehab allows him to more confidently um, talk about the cardiovascular outcomes of their bypass program, of their transplant program, and of their cath program. And so this is how they're really able to both increase not only cardiac rehab volumes, but increase overall procedural volumes when they go out into the marketplace and say, hey, we're, we're doing great in terms of our procedural and surgical um, quality me measures too. So it kind of is, uh, it, you know, going back to your question, Erica, how does this fit into a whole cardiovascular program? It really helps to just lift the entire program up in terms of quality, revenue, outcomes, and patient loyalty. Absolutely. And Ed, as you were explaining what's possible with virtual appointments in terms of expanding reach and really driving operational efficiency, it really does lead, lead me to think more about that overall issue of access to care. And so I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that issue. Uh, so what about the patient who is truly too far from a rehab center? Can virtual care for cardiac rehab, can it be done fully remotely? And if so, how does this impact facility volumes? I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, Ed. Thanks, Erica. Really great question. It's very timely. Uh, just in the last week or so, uh, both Terry and I came across a, a research study that uh, demonstrates that about 14% of patients across cardiovascular patients across the country live in what's called a cardio uh, cardiac rehab desert. Uh, translated, that means there's zero supply of a cardiac rehab program for these regions and, and counties where there is a, a good solid amount of demand for cardiovascular ser services. So that's that's 14%. Now Beyond that, there are upwards of 40 to 50% of, of patients in the country where they're at an hour, hour and a half, two hours from the nearest facility. And now it just becomes a convenience. And, and, um, and sadly, you know, how much are you going to pay to make that trip in on, uh, it, you know, in terms of gas? And that's if they have a car. And so there's the arduous component of making it into facility. Um, and, and then so what we have seen, we've talked to hospital executives and, and physicians, physicians saying that this can be done uh, virtually. Um, there's supervision, there's, it's a, a clinical, clinically supervised uh, audio and visual program where patients can really uh, have all safety measures at, um, at their disposal that's monitored and 
it's exercise, it's diet, it's smoking cessation, uh, lifestyle um, modification, many of these things that Terry mentioned, and they can be done virtually uh, for those that aren't able to get into a facility. Um, what's interesting is that when a, when a health system or a hospital takes on a virtual program, this increases overall uptake. So three to four times of, of pre-implementing a virtual program in some cases. And that's just because you're getting with a virtual program, more access is out there, more patient choice, more, more patients are talking to each other and family members are talking about it. And so not only are, are they enrolling more in virtual programs, but they're enrolling into a facility program too. And then when they find out about ICR, that helps them both in a facility as well as virtual. Uh, maybe Terry, you could share some of your successes that you've, you've seen in, in some of the provider partners that you've, you've had that have done some programs like this. Yeah, sure, Ed. Great points. To kind of piggyback on what Ed was talking about and, and why virtual cardiac rehab and intensive cardiac rehab make sense, I'm going to highlight a few other things that we've seen in our providers who are doing it. So many of our licensed hospitals have limited limited capacity to handle the volume of patients who've actually qualified for cardiac rehab. They're limited in space and equipment and staff resources uh, to support that. In fact, some of our clients are reporting wait lists of three months post-discharge before they can even get the patient into their cardiac rehab program. And some of our providers are actually discharging patients from rehab early. In other words, not, not having them complete the full 36 or 72 sessions to address that backlog in those long wait lists of patients. And that's not a good solution given that there is a, there's a dose response between the number of sessions that a patient attends and the long-term clinical outcomes. So that's not a great solution either. In fact, there was some research, you know, Ed referenced research. There was one I was reading recently as well part of that same uh, study, it shows that the median time from discharge to cardiac rehab initiation across the country is 39 days. And ideally you want a patient in as soon as possible within three weeks or sooner at least. And it also shows that for every day, and this is previous research, it's shown that for every day delayed in starting cardiac rehab, you get a 1% decrease in probability of a patient actually enrolling in cardiac rehab. Thus, the virtual and, and hybrid options, which we really haven't talked specifically about, but hybrid is a combination of patient comes in person a few times and the bulk of their uh, rehab is done virtually. But both, whether it's 100% virtual or hybrid or, facility, or, or a hybrid model, it offers a way to reach rural and underserved populations that don't have access to a nearby facility like those cardiac rehab deserts that Ed was talking about earlier. And the decrease and that decreases the backlog of patients waiting for this very important clinical service. Absolutely. And what you both have shared really highlights how virtual care in this space is becoming essential, you know, not just in order to reach those patients who might live in rural areas and need better access, but to really augment the services that 
facilities are able to provide in order to, you know, meet the standards of care, which is so important for these patients. So thank you again for sharing that. And I'm really, I really like how this conversation has kind of accumulated to focusing so much on um, the patient and the patient experience and their outcomes and comfort and their safety. And so I'm wondering among both of your organization's health system partners, um, I know patient satisfaction is continuing to be a top priority among all of the other priorities that leaders are focusing on right now. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about how cardiac recovery and the services that you provide, how it does contribute to improved patient satisfaction. Ed, maybe you can get us started there. Thanks, Erica. And at the end of the day, it really is about patient care, patient experience, patient satisfaction, and access and choice go a really long way. Um, allowing patients to have the choice to do this in their own home or the choice to do this in a facility has, has proven uh, to improve patient satisfaction. Um, for those that are have done a virtual program um, in, in health systems that we've worked with, they've seen net promoter scores of 80 plus uh, percent. We've seen some almost hit um, you know, 85, 90. Um, they love the option and the home-based experience because it's very personalizable. They can, uh, when they're talking about diet or nutrition um, on a virtual encounter, you actually can talk about the spices that are on their spice rack, or let's open the fridge. Let's see, let's see what, what, what's going on there, you know, and, and there may be nutritionists on that, that advise them how to best customize their next meal. So uh, stories like that. Um, really helped to improve the patient experience. One thing that Terry touched upon was the fact that there are um, there's a broad swath of of demographics out there, and there are some underserved areas. There are some underserved populations. Um, those that that are, are bilingual or or um, not maybe maybe not uh, able to communicate well um, in in English and there, there may not, if there's hard to have, if it's difficult to get translation services on site, um, that's one benefit of leveraging a, a virtual platform is that you can quickly, um, have an, an audio visual, um, interpreter or translation service come on board. Uh, we've, we've seen patients, um, Portuguese, Ukrainian, uh, of course, Spanish, uh, Korean that, uh, and they, and they feel really at home when they're as part of a virtual encounter that has someone that speaks their, their native language. And that's, that, that certainly has improved the patient experience. Um, at the end of the day, it's a bit of common sense that when you provide these, these options and access to patients that you do see higher satisfaction and, and more uptake of services. Terry, perhaps you could share what you've seen on the ICR side of things. Yeah, absolutely, Ed. So I was with one of our um, licensed providers in Washington a few weeks back, and we had a chance to talk and actually utilize her, her outcomes data of her virtual program. Um, and they have three different sites where they run our intensive cardiac rehab program. And back to the transportation issue that that Ed mentioned, in addition to maybe living in an area or a ICR or CR desert where they don't have one in the area, those that are coming into their facility from the rural areas, well, she said the average patients that are participating in their program are over 40 miles 
one way to their facility. Now, who's going to drive 40 miles one way or 80 plus miles both ways two to three times a week? Not many. You've got to be a pretty committed patient and have the means, not only financial means, but trans transportation means to get to a brick and mortar cardiac rehab facility. But she said she's been extremely pleased with how their, their patient satisfaction scores and their clinical outcomes are all comparable to that that they're seeing in their face-to-face -face brick and mortar outpatient cardiac rehab and intensive cardiac rehab program, which she said she wouldn't have intuitively thought about at first. But in fact, all the data is pointing that direction. It's saying that patients are getting equivalent satisfaction scores because it gives them more flexi flexibility in the schedules, the time it's re uh, required to go through it. They can do it in the uh, safety of their own home and, and patients are really engaged and enjoying it. And it's reflected in their patient satisfaction scores. In fact, um, just to kind of put a bow on this, the Pritikin program and the, the intensive cardiac rehab program allows for more patient engagement than traditional cardiac rehab because you've got 36 additional sessions where the clinical personnel at the hospital, or in the case of virtual uh, ed staff, to interact with a patient two to three times per week over a 12 to 18 week period through these exercise classes, cooking classes, nutrition workshops, um, stress and healthy mindset education, which all combined lead to better patient loyalty and satisfaction. We just completed our recent net promoter score survey. We had a great response. We had a 57% response rate and our net promoter score at Pritikin came back at an 81. And for those of you that aren't familiar and anything you know, in the 80s is world-class in patient satisfaction or client satisfaction. Um, so we were extremely pleased uh, to see those results and know that our providers and their patients are finding value that not only do they feel better physically and mentally, um, but it's creating a solution that's more sustainable, something that they're learning through time, they can sustain even after they finish cardiac rehab. Absolutely. I really appreciate you both sharing how each of your organizations are approaching what kind of sounds like a much more tailored approach to what somebody, what a patient will want in recovery, you know, whether it's the, the capability to have culturally and linguistically competent services within the home and in the kitchen and helping with kind of with some of those skills and cooking and other areas that can support recovery. But then Terry, as you were saying, um, what Pritikin offers is just, it sounds like really beyond the minimum or what you might expect in another rehab program. So really appreciate you both sharing all of this. And I think this is such a great note for us to to end our conversation on. Um, so I wanna thank you both so much for what you've shared and how you've illuminated the innovation in this space. And then on a personal note too, my mom is about to have open heart surgery within the next few months. So it's just so reassuring to hear about um, how many motivated folks there are behind these services and that, who are really trying to improve what's out there. So thank you both. Thank you, Erica. Thank, thank you, Erica. And we wish um, you and, and your mother 
good health and, and recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think the conversation today was meant to be, so I appreciate it. <laughs> and we'd also like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Recora and Pritikin. For all of those listening, you can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckerspodcasts.com.